for our scripture reading this morning, which will also provide that portion of God's word, which I would like to speak about to you this morning, is at Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans and chapter five, Romans chapter five, Romans, the fifth chapter. I'm going to read and ask you to follow along the first two verses, one and two. And then we'll come down to verse 6 and we'll read through to verse 11. Romans 5, 1 and 2, and then 6 through 11. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your redeeming love to us is beyond our ability to fully measure. The Apostle Paul, we exclaim, thanks be to you, O God, for your indescribable gift. We come in this very special season to exult in you through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. With the sacred word in one hand and as it were the blessed hymnal in the other, we come to rejoice in the message of Christmas, the wonder of God and sinners Reconciled. Thrill our hearts again with fresh insights and deeper gratitude for your grace in choosing to set your infinite love upon us through the Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Christmas intentionally comes early at Good Shepherd Church. This is a good thing. We have the great privilege of coming together to worship Christ, the newborn king, four times over now.
between now and the last Lord's Day of December in this year of our Lord, 2012. I can assure you that this month, more than once, we will lift our voices in praise to the Lord, employing the words of the prolific hymn writer Charles Wesley as we sing the much-beloved Hark! The herald angels sing that particular Christmas carol, perhaps more than any other, is just so biblically informed. It is so doctrinally rich and deep that I will make reference to it in each of these four messages that I will bring Lord willing this month. For example, after a few moments more of introductory comments, we're going to look at Wesley's phrase in the second line of the first verse. You know it well. God and sinners reconciled. Now, this is why we have read the portion of Paul's writing in Romans 5. The term reconciled and reconciliation appear three times in those few verses that we read together. It appears multiple times in different portions of our New Testament. Now, I want you to know clearly, I'm not going to be preaching from the hymnal, but as always from the Bible. Nevertheless, the hymn may be honored as having significant value because it points our hearts and minds back to the divine revelation that is God's word, the Bible. You know, I'm reminded that Martin Luther once asked, what two books from his vast library he would request were he sent into exile or placed in prison. This is how Luther answered. He said, grant to me first my Bible and secondly, my hymnal, and I shall have a sufficiency for all things I must endure. Another of the notable heroes of our faith were two brothers born in England in the early 1700s. Both John and Charles Wesley set sail for the brave new world and became missionaries in a colony just north of where we live, what is now the state of Georgia. John Wesley is considered, of course, the spiritual father behind the founding of Methodism in America, while Charles Wesley is often referred to as, quote unquote, the forgotten Wesley. But such a notion, however, is far from giving Charles his due for the important role in the growth of the Christian church in early America. I say that, well, as one historian puts it, Without the hymns of Charles, the Methodist movement may have gone nowhere. The early Methodists were taught and led as much through Charles's hymns as through the sermons and pamphlets of his older brother, John. It is probably not an exaggeration to say that Charles Wesley was the greatest hymn writer of all Time. Now, I have to say that, I guess, with apologies to Sir Isaac Watts of England 
and maybe even Bill Gaither. Charles was said, get this, to have averaged 10 poetic lines a day for 50 years. He wrote 8,989 hymns. That is 10 times the volume composed by England's Isaac Watts. Wesley composed some of the most memorable and biblically precise lasting hymns of the church. You folks sing many of these hymns often, but may not have looked closer to see that Charles was the author of such beloved hymns as And Can It Be That I Would Gain an Interest in the Savior's Blood? Or the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Wesley, also the author of Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. We sang that just a couple of Sundays ago. He wrote Jesus, Lover of My Soul. He wrote for Easter, Christ the Lord is risen today. He wrote for the church militant, soldiers of Christ arise. Rejoice, the Lord is King. And of course, hark, the herald angels sing. And so I'm going to honor Wesley's contribution by taking as our sermon banner, if you will, this month, hark. The herald angels sing. There are actually seven verses in Wesley's original version. And given what hymn book editors believe is the short attention span of American congregations, even our own hymnal has only three of the seven verses. But in another hymnal, thankfully, There are four verses from which we will glean the four parts of this Christmas preaching series. Part one today, God and sinners reconciled. Part two, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, hail the incarnate deity. Part three, which I believe is the Lord's Day just before Christmas Down from his glory. And then the last Sunday of this whole year and the last Lord's Day in December, the phrase second Adam from above. All of these from the pen of Wesley. So thus we have the greatness and the lasting value of Wesley's Christmas hymn is because the words are not only, as I've said, biblically informed, but in many cases, he actually uses the very words of Scripture. Like this particular word, this term, we're going to examine in the next moments together. God and sinners reconciled. Let me give you the whole sentence where that appears. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Now, we're going to look again at the Romans 5 passage to summarize 
uh, this particular aspect of the gospel, the doctrine of reconciliation. But I want you to, uh, well, discipline your heart and mind. I want you to hear. That is, I want you to really listen as I am about to share a compendium of scripture references where the term reconcile and reconciliation appears in your New Testament. Other than, but including, of course, Romans 5. We've read Romans 5 in that portion three times. The word reconciliation appears. Now, in order to not break your concentration or your meditation, I'm not going to list all the references where they may be found. But there's probably not a person here this morning that knows I won't be making any of this up. This is all pure scripture and it is tied together from various places. I want you to hear the word of the Lord. And if it helps you, you may close your eyes if it helps, as long as you open them again. And uh, I want you to listen to this gospel truth that God and sinners, God and sinners really are reconciled to God. Hear the word of the Lord. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. And through him, here it is, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although... You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And all God's people said, Oh, my dear friends, may that compendium reading of God's word penetrate your heart and your mind and mind. Let's give God the glory for this thing called reconciliation. Now, rather than a mere dictionary definition, the real glory of the term reconciliation is viewed best by its context. Now, if you still have, and I hope you do, that portion of Romans 5 that we read still open before you, I want you to see this. Reconciliation is an act of God. I trust that that was abundantly clear as it was written for our benefit several times over. This thing called reconciliation is an act of God. It has its origins in the grace and in the mercy of God alone. You know, contrary to a Hollywood uh, romanticized notion that some dying bad man had better make his peace with God, the Bible teaches that there is no peace with God unless God makes it. Uh, this is a primary point of all this scripture reading this morning. And so I'll repeat it again. There really is, never would be, since our first parents, any peace between a holy God, fallen and depraved sinners, Unless God makes that peace. Put Romans 5 verse 6, for example, and verse 10 together. You'll see unequivocally that reconciliation is an act of a sovereign God. Let me read it again. For while we were still helpless. I don't know. Is it the King James that says without strength? While we were still helpless, no power, no strength to redeem ourselves, nor to reconcile ourselves to God at the right time. It is Christ comes and dies for the ungodly. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his one and only son, much more Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The order of every phrase and every word there is so important to get a proper understanding of what God seeks to reveal to us in the coming of Christ. We are defining the doctrine of reconciliation 
by its biblical context. So first, reconciliation is a sovereign act of God. And secondly, now reconciliation is essential to salvation. We just read that having been reconciled, the act of a sovereign God, we now are saved from that wrath of God, which was due every sinner. So reconciliation, absolutely essential to salvation because of what we read as the sinner's desperate estrangement from God and his natural plight without strength, without hope, apart from God's reconciling work, that is. Will you note with me in verse six? You may look at it. Will you note in verse six that sinful man by nature that is apart from any invasion of God's grace into his darkness. Natural man, sinful man by nature is described two ways. I've already emphasized this. He is both helpless without strength, without hope, but he's also described as anything but what God himself is. He is described with the word ungodly. Everything that God is, that is godliness, the natural man is the opposite of. It's what the word ungodly means. In verse 8, keep following along. In verse 8, even as Christ was offering his blood as the ground for our reconciliation, what does the scripture says? say? It says we were still sinners. Uh, there was no notion of cleaning up our act or turning over a new leaf. Only, only the blood of Christ can cleanse from sin and bring about the effects of this reconciliation that God was doing. That is in Christ, while we, for our part, were still sinners. This truth that reconciliation... God making peace with us and for us, the scriptures are saying, was already accomplished at the cross. And it has tremendous implications, which I hope to uncover with you in just a moment. But also see that reconciliation is essential to our salvation. It is equivalent to the words of Jesus himself when he spoke to a man by the name of Nicodemus and said, this is essential. Verily, verily, I'm telling you, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Nicodemus says, well, how can I do that? And how does Jesus respond? You can't. You can't. You can't. But the Holy Spirit, blowing like the wind, is the illustration Jesus uses. It's mysterious indeed, but he blows where he will, and when he does, he is the breath of eternal life. That's why Nicodemus and every fallen man, woman, boy, and girl must be born again if, in fact, 
they're going to see God. There's an equivalency here to this doctrine of reconciliation and the doctrine of regeneration. That is what it means to be born again. I want you to see how verses 9 and 10, once and for all, should dismiss any foolish notion that a sinful man or woman could ever establish a friendship with God by any act of their own will or even their best intentions. For we are, the Apostle Paul proclaims, what? By nature, the children of wrath. Our very minds and hearts untouched by grace, our minds and hearts at enmity with God, making us, as Jesus said, on another occasion, children of the devil and enemies of God. In that darkest, dark despair, into that night, a child is born. A child is born in a lowly stable stall in a podunk town called Bethlehem. It's into that darkness that the very light of life, John calls him, enters a sinful world through the portals of a virgin teenager's womb. Hallelujah. This is the extraordinary Christmas story. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth, not wrath. How? Mercy. Mercy mild. That's how. God taking the action. God and sinners reconciled. You know, it occurs to me that when you start to read the Bible... That literally everything after Genesis chapter 3 is a story of unfathomable mercy. Right? Our first parents have sinned and have spiritually died in their relationship to their creator. It might have all ended that day. God would have been perfectly just to burn up that whole world that he had just created. And Adam and Eve cast into a hopeless hell of eternity. But that's not where the story ends. Everything after Genesis 3 is the story of unfathomable mercy. It is the story of Jesus. All of it accomplished at the cross. A final, listen carefully, a final crucial truth about this doctrine of reconciliation. Every single context, I've checked this out for us, every context for this word reconciliation points to the cross and the blood of Christ. Here in Romans 5. In 2 Corinthians and Colossians, those are the portions, by the way, that I read to you early. Always, 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 
It is the blood of Christ. It is the cross that overshadows it all. Overshadows the nativity scene. Uniquely, this beautiful, absolutely beautiful gift of the nativity scene was given to our church now some years ago. And I hear you when you come in the first Sunday that it's on display and how delighted you are to see it again and how it helps keep us focused. I was sharing with the folks on Wednesday night. I remember the very first time we set this up some years ago. I think it was 2007. And, and we were trying, the, the artists among us, which are few, were trying to say, now, what, what's the best way to display these beautiful figures and this, this beautiful um, uh, purple, uh, blue or whatever it is, royal robe that it sits on. At one point, it was being sort of lifted up in front of the pulpit here. And I just happened to be passing by. And as most of you know, whenever pastor's passing by, he tends to interfere. And, and so we put the, the drape up here. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Sort of instinctually. I said, don't cover the cross. Don't cover the cross. Because that's what the Bible story is really saying. The shadow of the cross. The nativity scene. That same cross followed a 12-year-old boy into the temple. And the shadow of that cross still stood in the background while the blind were being made to see, the lame to walk, the leper cleansed. And then, all the way up to Golgotha, no longer was it the shadow of the cross, it was the real thing. Where on the stinking garbage heap of our iniquities there, He bled and died, and what we're learning this morning in a fresh way, I trust, He brought reconciliation for sinners. So Christ and His Father together become both just and the justifier of all those who would believe. Verse 1 of Romans 5 speaks of this peace. Having been justified by faith, it says, we have peace with God. It does not say peace in the world. We haven't had that. Yet, we will. Not now. Peace came into the world. And those who possess it in a very personal way are those who have looked to the Christ of Calvary and have received their right standing with God, their reconciliation to God by this act of extraordinary divine love. But understand, the apostle says, this peace was made, this is so clear, while you and I were yet in our sins. While we were still hostile, sinners by choice, And enemies by nature. The peace that was made at the cross is made to be effectual in our lives, as we've already said, by that inward, mysterious work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. No wonder he is sometimes called the Spirit of Grace. It is the Holy Spirit that brings both repentance and faith so that God and sinners are reconciled once and 
for all. For by grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. That's why we give gifts at Christmas. By grace are you saved. Through faith. That not of yourself. This is the gift of God. And it's nothing you can work. Nothing you can earn. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone boast. We do not come here to boast, do we? Each Lord's Day morning. We come to praise. We do not come to boast in ourselves. We come to praise the Prince of Peace, the great reconciler through his blood of sinners. A moment ago, I promised to share with you one of the most glorious of implications for the child of God in this doctrine of reconciliation. It is this. The apostle always speaks of the reconciliation as already accomplished at the cross. There is a certain past tense here in the verses we've read, and we ought not to overlook it. The language is one of, and I quote again, reconciled past tense to God through the death of his son, having been past tense reconciled, we have received past tense the reconciliation. You see, Wesley was right. God and sinners reconciled from God's perspective, the work accomplished. It is what Jesus meant when one of his seven cries, really pronouncements from the cross, when he said it is finished. What was finished? God and sinners are being reconciled. Beloved, there's a certain sense in which at one time, if you'll think about this, all of our sins, there was a time when all of our sins were in the future. Right. I take it that I didn't take up my career in sin until after the doctor smacked my behind and said, you have a boy. I'm sure I started shortly thereafter and it piled up a mountain and a multitude of transgressions in these 65 years. All my sins on that birthday were future. But the work of forgiving them, the work of my being reconciled to God was accomplished more than 2,000 years before July the 12th, 1947. Gives me chills. I don't know about you. Someone could say, well, when were you saved? Oh, about 2,000 plus years ago. If you mean, when was salvation purchased by the blood of Christ on my behalf? We like to think of these things poetically and sentimentally. Most people have no problem with that. When we say things like, Now, if you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have come anyway and died for you. Well, that is a sweet sentiment, but there's a much more powerful doctrine at work here. In the Corinthian text, uh, you didn't know I was reading from there, but it was 2 Corinthians 5. We learned that what was once announced to shepherds by angels 
is now the announcement we are privileged to make before all the world. We have good news of great joy. Think about it. You have the right. I have the right. We have the responsibility to approach any unregenerated, unsaved person we know who is at enmity with God in this present moment to say God has made it possible for you to be reconciled to him. This is the message of Christmas. And that we, too, are ambassadors for Christ. One old hymn puts it rather graphically. Go and tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere. We are the ones who have this privilege of issuing what the the theologians call the universal call. Whosoever will may come, 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 come. We do that part. Christ himself is our peace. He has made reconciliation. And through us, Christ himself makes that word of reconciliation that we proclaim and shout from the housetops. He makes it effective. Only he can make the gospel, the power, his power. The gospel is not our power. I can't save anyone. But the gospel is the power of God unto what? The power of God unto salvation. We preach it to all. And the wind blows where it wills. Not everyone responds in faith. And those who do, the scriptures conclude, have only good reason to give all glory and praise and honor to Christ alone. All that we've said then, if I could put it this way again. Is crucial. I like that word. You'll see why. Crucial to this Christmas story. Did you know that the word crucial comes from the word cross? Beyond the rough wood of the manger scene where lays the Lamb of God raises that shadow of the old rugged cross. And we know that the blood never loses its power. And even after 2,000 plus years, he is still calling sinners for whom he reconciled that day out of every nation, out of every tribe, out of every tongue. And we're part of that work. Whosoever will shall come. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved because Jesus Christ reconciled such sinners as we are to himself by his cross and by his precious blood. Again, God's people said, I may be asking you to say amen a lot. And I think December's such an appropriate month to do that.